Our scripture reading begins at verse 9 of the second chapter of the book of Hebrews. But we do see him who was made for a little while lower than the angels, namely Jesus, because of the suffering of death crowned with glory and honor, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting for him for whom are all things and through whom are all things in bringing many sons to glory to perfect the author of their salvation through sufferings. For both he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified are all from one Father, for which reason he is not ashamed to call them brethren, saying, I will proclaim your name to my brethren. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children whom God has given me. Amen. Now, last week we were considering how Jesus Christ is supreme and that the future belongs to Christ. Jesus Christ is Lord of this present world, having been exalted to the right hand of the Father. He governs supremely over everything, even though At present, we don't see everything subjected to Christ. We turn on our news. We read our newspaper. We watch the argument in the parking lot of a family. And we realize that not everything is subject to the ways of Jesus Christ yet. We know that this world is still amiss and awry. But the day is coming when Christ will take care of all things in the end. And so last week we saw how the author of Hebrews uh, fortifies his argument of the supremacy of Christ by appealing to Psalm number eight. Psalm eight is a psalm where the psalmist praises God for the creation and the vastness of the creation. And at the same time, while contemplating all the stars and the constellations and all the animals and all that God has made wonders, why does God pay attention to man? Well, what the author of Hebrews brings out of that psalm, though, is this point also. And that is that the man in view here is not just any man, but it is the son of man. It is a precursor of the Lord Jesus Christ. That the son of man that the psalmist is singing about, that David wrote about under the inspiration of the Spirit, is Christ. And that Christ, who in the beginning created everything, yet was what? Subjected to the law. He was born of a woman, made under the law, we are told, to suffer and to die on a cross, and then to be exalted at the right hand of the Father. 
But this is a process, says the author of Hebrews, because we do not yet see everything subjected to Jesus Christ. And so we live in, as the theologians say, the now and the not yet. The kingdom of Christ has begun in this world, but it is not yet full. It is not yet brought to fruition and consummation yet. There is a lot still to be done. And so Jesus gives us the great commission where he says to go and baptize and disciple the nations, teaching them to observe everything that he has commanded. And so we see the importance, for example, of missionary work. And we see that we need to pray and labor with patience for the building of the kingdom. Now today, what I want us to see in verses 9 through 13 is that the author of Hebrews tells us something about the suffering and the glory that exists in the life and ministry of Christ in his earthly ministry, and that is a reality for us. We live in this tension of the humiliation and the exaltation of the Lord Jesus Christ. You can look at your catechism, and you see how in question 27 and question 28, the catechism teaches us that Jesus has a ministry of humiliation and also a ministry of glory, a ministry of exaltation here. And so let me read, for example, in question 27, wherein did Christ's humiliation consist? And the catechist says, Christ's humiliation consisted in being born, and that in a low condition, made under the law, undergoing the miseries of this life, the wrath of God, and the cursed death of the cross in being buried and continuing under the power of death for a time. And then, in question 28, you'll notice that the catechism deals with the exaltation of Jesus. Christ's exaltation consisteth, he says, in his rising again from the dead on the third day, in ascending up into heaven, in sitting at the right hand of God, the Father, and in coming to judge the world at the last day. The author of Hebrews, I want to argue today, is doing something very similar for us here in verses 9 through 13. He is showing us three thoughts that I want to bring. First of all, we see that Jesus is made a a little lower than the angels. That is, his humiliation is far below that of angelic authorities, climaxed, if you will, or the nadir of it, if you will, in the death of Christ. So that the suffering of Christ is put forth. It's interesting that the it's almost counterintuitive that the author of Hebrews is trying to show you the supremacy of Christ by showing you the depths of his humiliation first. See, the world doesn't work that way, does it? If the world wants to show you the supremacy of something, it wants to show you what? Power, glory, strength, might. And the author of Hebrews says, oh, but wait, I want to show you a glory that is something far beyond what the world can offer. I want to show you the depth of the humiliation and the ostracization of the Son of God 
who being greater than an angel as the eternal son, yet is made in his humiliation, a man, a little lower than the angel. And if that were not enough, he becomes a man of the most miserable sort, a man who is placed under the very wrath and curse of God willingly to atone for sin. And, and so it's very counterintuitive, isn't it? He is showing us the supremacy of Christ by showing us the wonder of the gospel. Angels long to look into this matter. How can this be that he who created us should condescend so far beneath us? How can this be? Why would God do this? Why would the Son of God take this upon himself? Why would the Father and the Son agree to this plan from all eternity? You see, this is the wisdom of God. It is the foolishness of God which is wiser than the wisdom of men. And so Christ was made a little lower than the angels. That's point number one that we will see. Number two, from, and that's coming from verse 9. Number two will be from verse 10. And that is that Christ is sanctified through suffering for salvation. Christ undergoes a sanctification within himself. I want, and I want to explain what that means and what it doesn't. Through suffering for salvation. And then, number three, from verses 11 to 13, you and I are united to this Jesus Christ in sanctification. We are united to this Jesus Christ in this sanctification. So those three thoughts with us today. First of all, look at verse 9 and let us consider how Christ became lower than the angels. Look at verse 9 with me. But we do see him who was made for a little while lower than the angels. Now, what do we make of this phrase, we do see him? You say, Pastor, I do not see him. Okay, you are right. We do not see him with the natural eye. So I take this to mean that we see him, we see Christ by faith. As the gospel is made known to us, as the gospel is preached, as the gospel is read in the scriptures, as it is taught in the epistles of the apostles, we do, by faith, see him whom we've never seen. We hear of him whom the apostles saw and heard with the natural eye and the natural ear, but who now preach him to us by the ministry of the Spirit, and the Spirit applies that message to our soul so that even though we have not yet seen him, we do love him, says the Scriptures. How do we love him? Well, because we have seen him with the eye of faith. I don't know what he looks like exactly, boys and girls. Sometimes boys and girls want to know, what does he look like? Can you draw me a picture, mom or dad? Tell me, what is he? I don't know. We don't know. But the most important thing is that we see him not with the natural eye, but the eye of faith. One day, faith will be made sight, and you will see him in his glory. And um, believe me, when you see him, you know, the, the, the superficial things that people wonder about, you know, uh, how, how much pigment was in his skin and his hair color and his eye color, that'll mean nothing to us. I mean, even John, who probably knew him as well as any adult knew him, save maybe his mother Mary, 
John has a completely different reaction to Jesus once Jesus is exalted in the Revelation. Remember, in, in, in the earthly days of Jesus, John put his head upon his breast. And yet John tells us in the book of Revelation when he sees the glorified Christ, it, it is not the same response, is it? He falls down as a dead man in, in front of his feet. So I take here in verse 9 this phrase, we do see him, is meaning by faith. We do see him by faith, who was made, and this is speaking of Jesus, who was made for a little while lower than the angels. Now, I think this means more than Jesus taking on our humanity. It does mean that. But notice here, it, it says here, for a little while. Well, Jesus is still in his full humanity. So it has to mean more than just the incarnation here. Now, when the Catechism speaks of the incarnation of Christ, it does indeed begin with, with the, 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 when it speaks of the humiliation, it begins with the incarnation. But it, it, it goes down from there, if I can put it that way. It, it begins, that's just the beginnings of his suffering, his taking on our humanity and, and with yet out any sin, but he takes on our humanity and he, he suffers the present miseries of this life. Jesus at times got sick. Jesus, no doubt, sometimes got injured when a neighborhood boy threw a rock and it hit him in the head and he bled. I mean, those things did happen. He entered into those sufferings with us in every way. He was tempted at every point, just as any human being might be experiencing uh, the, the, the common maladies that affect us in this world. But with this one fundamental difference, Jesus in those sufferings never sinned. But then the catechism and the Bible go on and they, they bring us downward, don't they? They bring us downward to a sense of isolation and desolation where Christ is left alone. He is left alone in the garden praying, God, if there's any other way to secure this salvation, let this cup pass from me, but not my will, but thine be done. And so Christ takes the cup into his hands, figuratively speaking, and he drinks of the wrath of God by allowing himself to be arrested. He could have escaped arrest, boys and girls. He could have. You see that when they come to arrest him and he says, who are you looking for? We're looking for Jesus. And he says, I am. Boom, and they fall down on their face. At the very words of the name of God. And Jesus says, who is it that you're looking for? And they get up and they say, we're looking for Jesus. And he says, I am. And they fall on their face again. It was, Jesus was allowing himself to be arrested. He was, a, he was giving himself into the hands of evil men. He was laying down his life so that he could take it back up again. He could have been rescued when they mocked him on the cross later. And they say, come down from the cross. If you're really the son of God, come off the cross and we'll believe you. <laughs> he, could, he saved others. He can't save himself. Yes, he can. Yes, he could. But he stays on the cross because he's entering into the humiliation for a little while lower than the angels, namely Jesus, because of the suffering. Notice here in verse 9, he says, the suffering of death. The death under the wrath of God. 
the judgment of God. Adam, 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 eat of this tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and in that day you will, what? You will die. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Thereby we are all subject to death, but here is one who is sinless. Here is one who is the Son of God. Here is one who is God incarnate. Here is one who, in his state of deity, is not lower than the angels, who is supreme over the angels, who created the angels by the power of his own word, and yet he willingly, voluntarily enters into this humiliation by becoming a man and suffering even to the point of death, as Paul says in Philippians, even to the point of death, even death on that ignoble cross, suffering the wrath, the judgment, the condemnation, the humiliation of his father's judgment. Why? To atone for sin. Why? Jesus has no sin. We do. And he owns that sin. And he takes it upon himself as a consequence in willingly enters into the judgment of God. He is, notice here, because of the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor. This is why Christ is supreme above angels and all else. He went to the nadir, and now, having suffered the nadir, Under the wrath and curse of God on the cross, he is what? He is raised on the third day, according to the scriptures, and he is seated at the right hand of the Father with glory and honor, so that what you might have grace, that today might be a day of salvation for you, so that he might taste death for everyone. Now I know there are a lot of Calvinists out there, and they're saying, oh, wait, what is this tasting death for everyone? Well, let's... Think on this. We know that the shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. That is true. And we do know theologically that God does condemn some to everlasting perdition. So how is it that Christ could taste death for everyone, though not everyone will be in glory? Well, I think what the author of Hebrews would answer is saying this, that he is saying Christ, in a sense, as the second Adam, does indeed taste death sufficiently for all. Now, it is efficient for those who will take it, but it is sufficient for all. And I think we, as we preach the gospel, the church wants to keep that balance. We, we always want to preach a gospel that is sufficient for all, that invites all, that whosoever might come and believe the gospel. Yes, we know that efficiently it will be for the elect, it will be for those for whom the Spirit has regenerated and given the gift of faith and that they shall believe. But let's, let's pause here for a moment on this verse and not try to skim it over too quickly. Let us see that Christ has tasted death for all, for everyone. Jesus Christ willingly humbled himself to the point of death, even death on the cross, that anyone, everyone, could turn to him. Now, we know that no one will turn to him unless God first work in his life. But, sufficiently, Christ has died for everyone. 
The gospel, therefore, is preached for everyone. The gospel is freely offered to everyone and sincerely to all. As Joel Beakey likes to say that when God offers us the gospel and the preaching of the word of God, he offers it as sincerely to the reprobate as he does to the elect. He pleads with everyone to believe on Christ. He pleads with the hardest hearts as well as with the most tender of consciences to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. He is offering salvation free. And so I, as a minister of the gospel, need to do the same. The church needs to do the same. We need to freely let anyone here, anyone watching on television, that salvation is sincerely, freely being offered to you right now. God in this moment is working through his word. Why do we emphasize preaching so much? Because it's the main vehicle that God delights in using by his spirit's power to convince and convert sinners. To convince people of the truth of who his son is. And to persuade them to take him. And to own him. And to love him. And to seek him as a savior. And to say to you, yes, he will truly take you if you will give yourself to him. If you will come to him, he will receive you. He will own you. He will acknowledge you. This is the way of Christ, that Christ will receive those who are genuinely sincere in wanting him. People who have recognized they need him. And that he is their only hope. That without him, there really is no real hope to stand before a holy and righteous being. A God on the day when all mouths will be closed. And the books will be opened. And our lives will be reviewed by the omniscient mind of God. And the very motives of our thoughts and hearts will be evaluated by this God. And we will be left naked before him. And that our only chance, if I can use that word, our only hope will be Christ in the depths of his humiliation. Why should I let you, sinner, why should I let you, man, woman, child, boy, girl, into my glory? Because of verse 9, Lord, because of Hebrews chapter 2, verse 9, he tasted death for everyone. And you said, Lord, that anyone who would call upon your name and believe upon you from the heart would be saved. And I'm coming, Lord, to Christ. I think if you struggle to have affection for God in your faith, if you find that your faith is, as Sinclair Ferguson calls it, metallic, that it is, it is lacking in delight. I think the author of Hebrews would have us 
camp out on verse 9 here. How do I delight in the being of God and His Son? I contemplate with Him the mystery of this one who created the angels but became lower than them, even to the point of death. That that might work on my mind. The Bible says that we are not to be conformed to this world, but we are to be transformed by the renewing of our minds. How do I renew my mind? I cogitate on truths such as verse 9. That the Son of God who created all things by the word of his power and brought forth into being all this glory, the sun, the moon, the stars, the sea, the creatures, and yet he, the eternal Son, becomes a man. Who is this Son of Man that you should be mindful of him? It is no one less than Jesus Christ coming to save sinners such as me. Well, we need to keep moving to verse 10 here and 11. Well, mostly 10. And the author of Hebrews, if that wasn't enough, then moves on to a second thought. And here we see that Christ is sanctified through his sufferings for salvation. Let's look at the verse, verse 10. For it was fitting for him, for whom are all things, and through whom are all things, in bringing many sons to glory, to perfect the author of their salvation through sufferings. Now, who is the first pronoun here? Who is the him? I believe that it is speaking of God the Father. That is, the, the first person of the Trinity. It was fitting for the Father for whom are all things and through whom are all things, in bringing forth many sons to glory to perfect, that is, it is the Father who is, if you will, perfecting the author of their salvation, that is, the salvation of God's people, his own people, the people of the Father, to perfect the author or the leader or the pioneer of our salvation through what? Sufferings. That is... Jesus is sanctified in, in himself to secure your salvation. Now, there's a proper understanding of what I just said and an improper understanding of what I just said. Christ is sanctified, made holy, that is set apart for the purpose of securing your salvation. This does not mean, however, that therefore there was anything deficient in his being or person. That is, that is, we are not saying that Jesus had sinned in any way, thought, or word, or deed that needed to be dealt with before he could go to the cross. What the author of Hebrews rather is saying is this, that though Christ has always been holy, conceived by the Spirit in the womb of the Virgin Mary, and born of her yet without any sin, he did not participate and partake of the sin nature of the first Adam and all who have descended by ordinary generation from him. So in what sense then, if Jesus was conceived and always holy, what sense did he need to be sanctified? 
Well, I think what the author of Hebrews is, is helping us to understand is that though he always was holy from the time of conception all the way till he said it is finished, nevertheless, there had to be a maturity, a process of sanctification. That is, that the sanctification, in, in a sense, had to come to its fullest expression as Jesus in his humanity matured. Let me see if I can illustrate it this way. The nine-year-old Jesus, of whom we know very little from the scripture, but the nine-year-old Jesus was, we have to say, theologically without sin. But he was without sin as a nine-year-old. That is, Christ was not ready yet to go to the cross, was he? For you and me. The time was not yet ready. The nine-year-old Jesus was without sin, just as the 33-year-old Jesus was without sin. But the 33-year-old son of God had reached a level of fitness for the cross, if you will, by which he could take on the weight of men's sins and die for those sins so that we could be received into glory. Think of it this way. Imagine I had the ability to foresee the future, boys and girls. And I said to you as a church, I said, I can tell you infallibly somehow that one of the greatest presidents of the United States who will be up there in the Pantheon with George Washington and Thomas Jefferson is going to come in your lifetime. But he's only six years old right now. Now, I think you would, we'd all agree, that six-year-old isn't ready for the Oval Office, is he? If, if he's here in this world somewhere, I don't know what state he lives in, but he's still a six-year-old, isn't he? There's a lot that needs to take place in the providence of God to make him ready and fit to take the oath of that high office. Now, if that be true with regard to an, an earthly civil magistrate, how much more true is it of what Jesus must become in order to accomplish what Jesus must accomplish? Does that make sense? That is, Jesus must grow in that sanctification, though he is sanctified to every degree that God would require that level of sanctification at that particular moment in the life of Jesus. But that doesn't mean that that level of sanctification is therefore at that moment ready for the cross. And therefore, Jesus, in order that he be fit for the cross, he has to undergo more sufferings. The Father must lead Jesus into increasingly deeper waters throughout his life. And so we see Jesus moving into those afflictions, don't we, in his public ministry. We see Jesus beginning in those early days, soon after he receives the Spirit, after his baptism and the Spirit of God falls onto him. What is the first thing the Spirit 
compels Jesus to do but to go out into the wilderness and fast for 40 days. And that's just to begin to enter in. I mean, you're going to have all these demonic attacks upon the Savior. We're going to see the temptations that the devil will throw at at the Savior. But that is what? That is training Jesus, isn't it? It's strengthening Jesus for what? For the cross. What What is Satan trying to abort? He is trying to abort the cross, isn't he? As if he could figure it out. I don't know whether he could or not. But what is he doing? He's offering Jesus everything that the Father will eventually give Jesus. But he's saying, look, you don't, have to, you don't have to suffer for it if you'll just bow down to me. And thank God for our sake that Jesus said, it is written, it is written, it is written, and refuted the, the devil with the word of God. Thank God that Jesus grew in sanctification at that point. That he was able to resist at that point all the temptations that the evil one was throwing at him so that he would be able to resist the temptations while he is going to the cross and while he's on the cross. It was a temptation when those men said, come down from that cross. And he stayed. It was a temptation when they came to arrest him in Gethsemane. And Jesus said, who are you looking for? And they fell on their face, but he allows them to get back up. You see, a nine-year-old wasn't ready for that. But Jesus, having suffered all his life in this world, was gradually being brought to the point where he would be able to endure greater and greater temptations. And as the second Adam, he wouldn't give in to any of them. You know, you think about, I don't know who it is, but you think about who's the greatest weightlifter in the world, you know, somewhere, somebody out there is able to pick up extraordinary amount of weight off the floor and lift it up to their chest and then to lift it up above their head. How in the world do you ever get there? How do you ever even begin to approximate doing something like that? It is only with years and years of training. And if that be true of an Olympic weightlifter, how much more? When the Son of God, Jesus Christ, has to lift the weight of all our sin and put it upon himself on his own shoulders and then stand before a holy God and be judged for those sins in our place. It was necessary that the Son of God suffer these things. Notice what the text says, to perfect the author of their salvation through sufferings. What is God doing? He is sanctifying his Son. What do we make of this? Well, if Christ needed these sufferings in order to accomplish the work that God had for him to do, One of the things that I think the author of Hebrews will tell us later in this epistle is that we dare not despise the training of God in our own lives. We are not holy like Jesus was. We are not without sin as Christ was. And if Christ, who was without sin, needed the training in order to accomplish our salvation, how much more we who are sinners need the training of God in our lives, the sanctification of God in our lives to do what God would have us to do. 
And therefore, the author of Hebrews later in this epistle will say, do not despise the discipline of the Lord. We are tempted to grumble and to murmur and to complain and to say it's not fair. And God, why are you dealing with me? Why are you treating me like this? And we, if we're not careful, we are, we are, if we are not careful, we are open to the suggestion of the evil one that it is because God himself is vindictive and pernicious. Because God himself does not love us. If God loved me, I wouldn't be suffering like this. Haven't you thought that at times, teenager? And what, what do we do? We have to say, Lord, forgive me of that thought. Forgive me, Lord, that I had a hard thought of you, especially in the light of what you've done for me through your son. I have to look at the providence of God in my life through the cross. I have to say, if God did not spare his own son, but gave him up over to the cross, will he not also, what, bless me, give me all things for my own sanctification? And that includes the sufferings. And this leads me to our third point here, and that is our union with Jesus Christ. The author of Hebrews shows us here that if the son needed to be sanctified and you, by faith, are in union with this son, What does that mean? Well, the Apostle Paul will tell you what it means. It means that if you are in union with a Christ who had to be sanctified to the point of going to a cross in order to secure salvation for all of humanity, then what? You too have to enter into that humiliation if you are going to know the glory of Christ. That means that you and I are going to have to subject ourselves and submit ourselves to the discipline of the Lord, because we are in union with a Christ who has suffered. Shall we not also experience those sufferings in Christ with him? Does Paul not say that somehow mysteriously the sufferings of Christ are still yet incomplete? Not saying that there was any deficiency in the things that Jesus suffered, but that in the the body of Christ, the sufferings, the fullness of the sufferings of Christ are are brought uh, to full measure in in the providential care of the Father with his people. We are in union with a man who has suffered great humiliation and who also now knows the zenith of exaltation. And Paul says, that's the mystery of the Christian life. I know those same sufferings to some degree. And I know, thank God, for something of the foretaste of the glory. And isn't that also cheapened by prosperity gospel? Where they would have you think there's to be none of the former. And that the, the idea of the... Of the the greater is to be found in the same things that the world would offer? No, Paul says, I, in this Christian life, experience this now and this not yet. I experience within my daily life this contradiction that I am filling up the measure of Christ's sufferings in my sufferings. And at the same time, I am also 
thankfully getting to taste something of the power of God at work within me. That as I go through this life and I am sighing and I am complaining and I am lamenting and I'm singing Psalm 87 and doing all the rest, I'm also knowing something of the power and ministry of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit of Christ is in me and He is helping me. He is sanctifying me. He's taking the worst of me out and He is putting the best of Christ within me. Over time, He is helping me to become more more and more like Jesus. And if Jesus had to experience the sufferings and miseries of this life and even the wrath and curse of God, how much more will I enter into something of those sufferings myself? But I also have this. I have the strength of God within me. I have the power of God. I have him who is within me, who is greater than he who is in the world at work in me at the same time. And I have to live with this mystery. You have to live with this mystery. You have to live with this reality until you're in glory until you're in the world where there is no more sorrow, no more sin, and no more suffering, and no more tears. And until that time, we strive, we suffer, we pray, we work, we sweat, we bleed, we weep, but we rejoice. We rejoice, we praise God, we, we delight, we know something of, of this extraordinary joy this unspeakable joy at the same time. I have a joy that is not known by the world. I have a joy. There's something different at work within me at the same time. I feel it. I know it. And I know other people see it at times. There is still yet something greater at work going on through this. And this is what Paul... Paul, uh, I'm not saying that Paul's the author of Hebrews. That was a, that was a slip. There are some who believe Paul is the author here. But the author of Hebrews here, what is he doing? He, he is showing us this reality. By what? Showing us that we are brethren with Christ. Look at verse 12. I will proclaim your name to my brethren. That is, here the author of Hebrews is saying, these are the words of Christ speaking. And Christ is saying, I will proclaim the name of the Father to my brethren. That, and the emphasis here is on you. That is, the union you have with Jesus by faith. Notice verse 13, and again, the second part, look at verse 13b, and again, behold, I am the children whom God has given me. The emphasis here, I think the author of Hebrews would state, is the I and the children. There is this union between the believer. Calvin said that this was, in some sense, the sum of all Christianity, to know the union that we have with Christ. This mysterious union that I am in Christ. Christ is in me by his spirit. Though he isn't in this world, he's in glory. And yet what? Christ is at work in me. How many times does Paul use different prepositions speaking about us and Christ? I am in Christ. I believe in Christ. You know, the Greek word uh, Ferguson notes in his book on sanctification is it actually should be translated into. I believe into Christ. Not just believe in Christ, but I believe as though it's just a cognitive ascent. No, it's I believe into Christ. I am a part of the Christ body. He's the head. I'm one of the members of his body. And yet, while I am and you are into Christ, he is in us by his spirit. These are deep and profound things. Look at John 17 and read John 17 in your own leisure sometime. And note what it is that Jesus is praying in that prayer. 
I pray that they might all be one Father as what? You and me, the two first and second person of the Trinity, are what? One. I and the Father and you and me with the Holy Spirit and that the people of God, my brethren, would know this as well. It would be true of them, Lord. Isn't that glorious? Let me ask you something. Do you know something of what I'm speaking? I, it might be, wow, what in the world is he talking about? I've been going to church my whole life and never heard anything like this. Brethren, that is though what the Bible is saying here in Hebrews chapter 2. The author of Hebrews is trying to convince a church that is being tempted to leave Christ for the old covenant. Because supposedly there was a glory to that old covenant because it had angels. It was mediated through angels in the giving of the law. And the author of Hebrews is saying, congregation, forget about that. I've got something for you that angels want to know. What is going on here, Lord? That the Son of God would do this for men who have rebelled against him. We are but dust and have violated and committed adultery. We have violated the covenant in the garden. And yet God will still in his infinite love not forsake that one made in his image, but he with the Son will become one of them, yet without sin to secure salvation for them. And the angels can't believe it. The angels say, how can this be? The angels got no such deal, did they? The angels who rebelled were consigned to darkness forever. And yet, in his mercy, God would do so for humanity. And the angels wonder at the grace and the mystery of it all. You know, isn't that uh, something of what the Apostle Paul comes to in his, in his own thinking as he contemplates the decrees of God and, and the work of God in Jesus Christ and you take it all in and what, all that Paul can do is say this and we close with this. Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and the knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and how unfathomable his ways. An angel couldn't have said it any better. For who has known the mind of the Lord and who has become his counselor? Or who has first given to him that he might be paid back to him again? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen.